The Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. All right, we are in that section of chapter 5, which is often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, and or some would say Sermon on the Plain. And we uh, have already finished our study of verses 17 through 20, which is really the introduction to the remaining uh, part of the chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 21 through 48. I'll go, I'll go ahead and read it uh, just so that we can have it all in our perspective. So the introduction starts out, Do not think that I came to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the Torah until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of these of the least of these commandments or teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, neither by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is of evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. 
You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father is perfect. Well, that's a pretty uh, that's a pretty tall measure to try to figure out what in the world he's saying in all of that. I mean, we can see some things right off the bat. It's, he doesn't like tax collectors. We're, we're with him on that. I'm being a little facetious. Not that he didn't like tax collectors. It's just that tax collectors in his day had a pretty lousy reputation, especially amongst the Jewish people. What is your over, overall impression as we read that whole section? Does it seem... What does it seem to you? Yeah, it seems impossible to even try and do it. It seems as though the uh, the bar is set so high that you wonder how in the world could... Uh... It is radical, isn't it? Following Yeshua is radical. That's one of the things that I appreciated about the Jesus movement in the 60s. I mean, I didn't appreciate the theology and, uh, and a lot of the practices, but the one thing I appreciated is that they were radical. I mean, they were willing to basically give it all up and, you know, live in caravans and or whatever and go around the country and do whatever they felt they needed to do. Um, one thing that we do discover when we read the words of Yeshua, and that is that he he was uh, pulling the people back to something that they had strayed quite a ways from, apparently. So, it's in this section that we hear oftentimes uh, the Christian commentators uh, and teachers telling us that the Torah has been abolished. Now, you can see that we're, uh, we're coming to these six antitheses or six comparisons where Yeshua says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. It seems to me very uh, obvious why Yeshua, sh- uh, well, maybe we should say Matthew, we don't know exactly the order of all of these sayings. Were they in this order when he taught them? Perhaps. If they were, then Yeshua and Matthew had the same purpose in giving us this introduction, which was, don't let anybody tell you I came to abolish the Torah. Because once we have that firmly in our mind, we're not going to misinterpret, like so many have, the following antitheses. The antitheses are usually taught as saying, Moses said this, but that's no longer any good, and I say this, that takes the place of Moses. Well, we know that can't be the case, right? Because he has taken the time very clearly to tell us, look, the Torah, I didn't come to abolish the Torah. I came to establish it, to fulfill it. We have to take off the table the option of interpreting these six, um, you have heard it said, but I tell you things, these antitheses. Uh, we can't interpret it as though it means the Torah has been done away with. However, it's still very common for people to interpret that way. And it, it's, not, uh, it's not surprising whatsoever if you're visiting a church somewhere and he's teaching through Matthew, if he comes to this passage, or she's teaching through Matthew, whoever it may be, to give that interpretation of this text. That's, that's been very common. As we'll see, it really is a heart issue. And, and Marilyn, when you say, and I think you just voiced what uh, many other feel, and that is that uh, 
it seems like the bar is very high. But there's really nothing wrong with the bar being high as long as you know that he's going to help you get over it, right? right. Okay, so uh, he does set the bar high. In fact, how does, the, how does this uh, section end? You are to be perfect because your Heavenly Father is perfect. What does that remind you of in the, in the Tanakh? You shall be holy because I am holy. You know, the, the idea of perfect there is the idea of complete, whole. And, and in some ways, that's what holy means as well, to be entirely set apart to God. So, okay, that's a work that he's doing. This not, doesn't mean that we don't have the requirements to uh, uh, be at work with it also. All right, page 189. So, I've kind of given this introduction already a bit, so we'll skip a bit. The, the six antitheses are in groups of three. Um, in verse 33, it begins with again, and then only twice you have heard that the ancients were told or used the first one and the fourth one. So he's grouping them into groups of three, which is very nice, easier to remember that way. The first one talks about murder, the second one adultery, the third one divorce and remarriage, the fourth one vows, the fifth one taking revenge, and loving one's neighbor is where it ends. Even those uh, Christian teachers and commentators who recognize that this could not be the abolishment of the Torah because Yeshua plainly says it isn't, still want to see ways that the Torah is, is essentially set aside. For instance, in the middle of the page is a quote from Gary Brashears, and uh, he's a colleague of mine, and I read a paper responding to his paper at the ETS meeting, so he knows, I'm just saying that because to let you know, I'm not talking behind his back. We have uh, interchanged and dialogued our ideas on this issue. But he wrote a paper called The Place of the Law in the Life of the Believer in Christ. And one of the paragraphs in that paper reads this way. Jesus demands in these antitheses, he's talking about our text, uh, his demands go beyond the Mosaic Law and are different in kind. For example, his prescription of divorce is not mere exposition of Moses. Looking for its spiritual heart. Where Deuteronomy allowed divorce, Yeshua prohi- or Jesus prohibits it. He charges one who initiates divorce, except in the case of porneia, that is uh, unchastity, with causing adultery. Again, where the law allowed and regulated oaths, Jesus prohibited them. He, his command is different in kind from the Old Testament command which he quotes. The truthful character of the members of his kingdom makes oaths unnecessary and wrong. As a final example, while his command to love one's enemies does not specifically abrogate any command of the law, neither can it be construed as an exposition of the law. Jesus gives a command of quite a different order from those in the law. So what he's saying is, no, he didn't come to give to abolish the Torah, but he came to give a better Torah, and why would you want to go back to the inferior one when you have his? Well, He's, he's highlighted a couple of the significant problems in our text. It does say in Deuteronomy 24 that a man, well, it doesn't, it, it, it talks about the a case where a man gives his wife a, uh, a bill of divorcement, right? Okay, so there it is in the Torah. Yeshua seems to limit that significantly. And does it not say in the Torah that when you uh, uh, make a Nazarite vow, you are to take a vow? Isn't that required? When you come before the court, the court can require you to take a vow according to the Torah, according to the written Torah. Is Yeshua, therefore, by saying you shall not take any vow at all, giving a 
law of a different kind or a commandment of a different kind. Well, when we get to those sections, we, we will deal with that. I don't think he is, and I think there's other ways of understanding those words. But we can see that it, it, if given the propensity or given the um, leaning to want the Torah to go away anyway, when, when the Christian church reads these kinds of words, it was easier for her early on. It was easy to interpret them in such a way as to say, look, see, the law has been done away with. It's been abolished. So I'm so grateful that Matthew and Yeshua put that opening, the introduction, so that we would know right off the bat, you cannot interpret my words as saying the Torah of Moses is done away with or in any way that what I'm saying is in contradiction to or overturning what Moses has said. He starts out with this very strong message of, uh, of being in concert with Moses and then expects us to understand his words somehow in light of that introduction. All right. Um, yet in the former verses, as I just said, it is clear that Yeshua affirms the Torah as the eternal will of God. When he stated that he came to fulfill the Torah, his intended meaning, as the context clearly shows, involved doing the commandments and teaching others to do them, not finishing them in the sense that they are no longer necessary or relevant. Nor will it work to understand these antitheses as commending an inner, spiritual component of the Torah which it otherwise lacked. And this is another thing that some teachers have said. Oh, well, you know, the Torah is all externals. And so when Yeshua came, when he came to fulfill it, he came to give it real internalized meaning. You know, the, the Torah of the heart. Everywhere in the Torah and the prophets, however, the matter of one's heart, that is, his thoughts, intentions, and moral decisions, is addressed. What else could be meant by circumcision of the heart? Have you ever thought and contemplated that metaphor? Obviously, cir circumcision, in the physical sense, has made a shift to some meaning, and that meaning then has been applied to the heart. Right? I mean, no one thinks in their mind when they hear circumcision of the heart that someone goes in with a knife and cuts part of your heart out. So what is that transition? What is the meaning of circumcision? And how does that meaning then transfer to the phrase circumcision of the heart? Well, ultimately circumcision was a sign of trusting God for His promise of a Messiah. If I can be just that clear and bold about it. I know somebody might, listening to this recording, might be falling off their chair saying, how in the world can circumcision be a sign of the coming Messiah? But in the context in which it was given, surely that was the case, right? No son had been given to Abraham. Abraham uses uh, the Hagar method to try to uh, uh, cure the problem. That's not the solution. Next chapter, God gives him circumcision. In other words, uh, Abraham, you're not going to get the Messiah. You're not going to get the promised son, Isaac, and ultimately the Messiah through normal means of procreation. So the cutting away of the flesh of the foreskin was symbolic of saying you can't rely on the flesh. You cannot trust your own strength, your own ways to do these things. So circumcision became a metaphor for complete and full submission to God in the face of impossibilities. Like your wife who's supposed to have a baby and she can't. Right? Okay. So now... When we take the word circumcision and we apply it to the heart, now we understand it. Circumcision of the heart means what? A total, complete reliance upon God in the face of the impossible. So Marilyn, when you say the bar is set too high, I agree with you. I agree with you. And I, I, but in the face of that impossibility, God says, 
All I ask of you is full, complete submission in your heart and willingness to do, to live out what you learn and know. That's all He asks. And He promises to give us uh, His strength to do it. So, to say that the Torah is not inward is simply not to read the Torah. How then should we understand the six antitheses present in our text? First, it is clear that Yeshua is not contrasting his teaching with that of the Torah of Moses. Secondly, then, it seems clear that he is contrasting, by way of emphasis, a prevailing or widely accepted understanding of the Torah, which, though presented as the proper interpretation of Moses' words, had in some way missed the mark. It was something that needed to be corrected, as far as Yeshua was concerned. Numbers of suggestions have been offered. Some have understood the antitheses as a further explanation of the final statement of 520, which I think is obvious. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so if we were to ask Yeshua, well, how, okay, well, how can my righteousness surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, I'm going to tell you. You have heard it this way, but do it this way. One commentator says, the sixth antitheses are prepared for in 5.17-20 through 20 by the report both of Jesus' insistence that he came not to abolish the law but to see it fulfilled more effectively and of his stern words on the need for an abundant righteousness. But the question is whether exceedingly, exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees means to do something new or something otherwise unknown by them or if it means to obey the Torah of Moses as God intended all along but which had been obscured or negated by a wrong understanding of the Torah itself. Okay, you understand the two options? No, did you, okay, Yeshua says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by that? Some would suggest, well, that means he brought something new. He brought some message, new, new, new message, because nobody got into the kingdom of heaven before Yeshua came. Some would believe. Others would say, no, he didn't bring anything new. He brought uh, the message of restoration to bring back something that had been lost, something important that had been lost. Allison Davies, in introducing this passage, hold that Yeshua does introduce something new, something that surpasses the Torah. <clears throat> and they don't believe that he abolishes the Torah, but they believe that he definitely brings something new, and in some ways so do I. But I, it's hard to express that. Here's what they say. Its primary function, that is this section, is quite simply twofold. To show through six concrete examples, one, what sort of attitude and behavior Jesus requires, and two, how his demands surpass those of the Torah without contradicting the Torah. Now, I, I don't like that terminology. I well remember years ago when I was sitting right here in this uh, living room with uh, my good friend Rob Rayburn, that I was trying to get him to be convinced of this very, of this very thing, that Yeshua brought something greater than the Torah. Well, clearly Yeshua is greater than the Torah. I'm, nobody denies that but that he brought some kind of ethic or some kind of way of living that was greater than the Torah. And I remember him turning to me and saying, with just matter of fact, he said, I would give anything to have the spirituality of David, King David, the spirituality of King David. And it just, it just struck me. I, I said, Rob, I can't believe I'm hearing you say that. He said, well, you read the Psalms. What do you think? And he, his point was, I mean, it went right, I mean, it just cut my legs out is what it did. His point was that the spirituality of the people of, uh, that we read about on the Tanakh is at a very high level. How in the world could they have had that high spirituality if they had not yet this new something that Yeshua was to bring? See, it doesn't make sense. So yes, I, I believe that Yeshua is bringing something 
new in the sense of something that had been tarnished, overlooked, or even buried in some ways. But in the economy of God's overall scope of salvation, it is not new. Not new at all. A more common understanding is that Yeshua here is contrasting his own exposition of the Torah with that of the rabbis. Here's a quote from another uh, commentator, Hagner. By means of six bold antitheses representing the teaching of Jesus, Matthew now contrasts Jesus' exposition of the true and ultimate meaning of the Torah with the more common rabbinic understanding of the commandments. In this way, the incomparable ethic demands, ethical demands of the kingdom are set forth, and in this way, examples are provided showing how the righteousness of the Pharisees is to be exceeded. Now, this, in my opinion, is closer to the mark. In other words, that Yeshua is doing a critique on what had become the prevailing uh, theology of the synagogue or of the rabbis. I think this is closer to the mark. And as we shall see, the language employed by Yeshua corroborates the fact that he does have prevailing and common teachings of the sages in mind, which he intends to correct in line with his own teaching. But it seems to me that there are several other factors that should be mentioned here. First, is the halakhic principle of love which forms a watershed for Yeshua's teaching. Now, I suppose I always have to do this in our day and age, but what I mean by love is biblical love. Okay, I don't mean... And, and, it, and biblical love is, is very large and very wonderful. And it includes fuzzy. You know. But it's not just... Uh, it, it is not characterized by the love of, that we think of or the way the word is used in our, in our common day as total acceptance of anyone and everything. That, that this loving, you know, when you, when you, I hear these, this phrase put together, especially at funerals. This person was such a loving person, I don't know anybody he ever disagreed with. Well, disagreeing is not an unloving act. See, but it is in our society. Okay. So what I mean by love here is the biblical love. Love that sees relationship as worth fighting for, but relationship that has God at its center. And I'm talking about love for my neighbor, but the same is true with love for God. What I mean by saying that love is a watershed for Yeshua's teaching is that for our master, when conflicting halakha are encountered, I guess I should have said halakhot, should be plural, the deciding factor is love for one's neighbor. In the later rabbinic literature, which might well express prevailing views of the earlier centuries, I'm convinced in many cases it does, not always, but in the, in the rabbinic literature, Conflicting halachot are resolved either by following the majority or by giving preference to a positive commandment over a negative one. Okay, uh, you understand what I'm saying here? When you have two commandments and you can't fulfill them both, one conflicts with the other. Let's say, for instance, you have the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. You have the commandments, uh, don't work on the Shabbat. And your neighbor is in trouble and needs you to work <laughs> for them. So which one are you going to... Which one are you going to do? You're going to fulfill the commandment to love your neighbor. You're going to fulfill the commandment to to not work on the Shabbat. Well, that exact example, the uh, the sages would have said, some of the sages would have said, you choose the you choose the positive commandment as having more weight than the negative commandment. Others would have said, no, you follow the majority ruling. What does your local rabbis and uh, so forth? What do they say? That's what you do. The majority rules. How would Yeshua have answered? For Yeshua, the decision rests upon which commandment better expresses love for one's neighbor. Now, here's where you have to have wisdom with love. You know, if your neighbor asks, you know, I know I've said this before, but it's worth repeating because I think it's right to the mark. Billy Graham said, if you have a donkey that falls in the hole on Sabbath, 
Pull it out. If you have a donkey that falls in the hole every Sabbath, get rid of that donkey. Right? Okay, so if somebody is trying to, if somebody is taking advantage of your uh, desire to obey God's commandments, well, that's something you have to deal with. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about the need to let uh, loving our neighbor be a deciding factor in how we go about obeying the, the commandments. And Yeshua is a perfect example of that. Healing on the Sabbath as an act of kindness to one's neighbor. You know, they were all upset at, at him because he healed this woman who had this flow of blood for, what was it, 12 years? And, and, and he looked at them and said, this lady suffered for 12 years. And now you would have her suffer one more day just because uh, you think that the, that the Sabbath prohibits such a thing? What is he demonstrating there? Love for this woman was more important than their rules with regard to the Sabbath. Making love for one's neighbor a deciding factor in halakhic decisions is not, however, something novel with Yeshua. The very context of Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, shows that loving one's neighbor is a primary factor in how one is to obey the Torah. When Leviticus 19.17 states with regard to one's neighbor, you shall not incur, incur sin because of him, it is emphasizing that even in reproof, one must be careful to do so without anger or malice. It says in, in uh, Leviticus 19.17, you must reprove your neighbor. If you see him doing something wrong, you must reprove him. But you must do it so that you shall not incur sin because of him. Well, the, the rabbis have a lot of uh, explanation of that. But I noted one that was found in the Qumran scrolls. In 1QS5, it says, to reprove his fellow in truth, humility, and loving kindness. Sorry, it starts in the middle of a sentence because the scroll is damaged. He should not speak to him in anger, with grumbling, with a stiff neck, or with a wickedly zealous spirit. He must not hate him because of his own uncircumcised heart. Most assuredly, he is to rebuke him on the day of the infraction, so that he does not bear punishment because of him. What's the point in the overall context of that is, if you don't reprove your neighbor, you know what's going to happen? You're going to end up hating him. You're going to end up, you're going to end up not liking this guy. And then you're not going to be able to fulfill the next commandment, you shall love your neighbors yourself. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse and from a messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com. Here, obedience to the command to reprove one's neighbor is understood to be properly followed only when one's heart is governed by love. Don't do it when your heart's, you know, get your heart right first. Secondly, while the theme of spirit and word is more fully developed in the Pauline literature, those of you that studied through Romans, when we studied through Romans together, we went over that time and again, it is not without mention in the teaching of our Master. Now, I don't go on to talk about Paul's view of it, but let me quickly just review that. And some would uh, say, well, it's not right for you to bring Paul into the study of Yeshua. Obviously, Paul was not a believer in Yeshua at this time when Yeshua was saying his words. But Paul's point is that the Word is important. That is the Word of Scripture. The Word of Torah is important. But without the energizing work of the Spirit, it doesn't have any effect in the heart. The only effect it has is condemnation. It judges. It does not bring to life. 
So for Paul, if you have only the Word without the Spirit, it's no good. If you have the Spirit without the Word, which is impossible, that's also no good. Because the Spirit uses the Word. But the Word and the Spirit together is what brings life. That's the Gospel. Well, Yeshua has similar teaching. In his words to Nicodemus, the idea of being born by water and spirit in John 3, verse 5, captures the metaphoric language of Ezekiel 36, 25-26, in which the sprinkling of water accompanies the giving of a new heart and putting my spirit within them. Those things are combined. I'm going to sprinkle them with clean water. I'm going to give them a new heart and I'm going to put my spirit within them. For Yeshua, being born again, which is what he told Nicodemus he had to do, right? Was not a theological category, but a vital reality in terms of the work of the Spirit of God circumcising the heart, and by doing and so doing, empowering the individual to obey God out of a sincere motivation of love. And this is not relegated to some post-Pentecost phenomena, but is taught by our Master to Nicodemus as the normal work of God upon those who are His, something of which a teacher of Israel should have been fully cognizant. Do you understand what I'm saying there? The giving of the Spirit to do this work, to do this inner work of changing the heart, is not something that happened after Acts chapter 2. I mean, here you have Yeshua saying to Nicodemus, what, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know about this? How could you read Ezekiel and not know about this? <laughs> How could you read Jeremiah and Isaiah and not know about this? So, when Yeshua says, when He comes to Nicodemus and He gives him this message, we know that Yeshua had the same idea that apart from the Spirit of God, the ability to obey Him is, is simply not there. The fact that Nicodemus was apparently ignorant of the spiritual dimensions emphasized by Yeshua highlights the very contrast He is making in our text. In other words, you people are saying keep the Torah, but you don't, you don't have the emphasis that you need upon what it is required with regard to your heart to keep the Torah. Look, anyone can keep... You know, we all... I mean, I shouldn't say we all. I should just say I. I know this for sure. You know? The speed limit signs don't change my heart. Given the opportunity to get away with more uh, over, you know, miles, I would do it. You know, sometimes I could vex because I say to myself, why in the world do they have a 35-mile-an-hour thing here with a two-lane, you know, two-lane each direction? Come on. That's ridiculous. Here we are on a semi-freeway and they're making me go 35 miles an hour. So why do I go 35 miles an hour? Yeah, because you know you're going to get pinched if you don't. Right? So just simply having a, a, a list, a legislation of how you're to, to live, can it be beneficial? Of course it can be beneficial. If we didn't have uh, uh, speed limits around here, uh, things would be like they are in Liberia. I mean, they'd be a total mess. People would be killed every day for no reason just because people drive like maniacs. Okay, so there is a value in this legislation of laws. But see, Yeshua wants to take it further than that. He wants the, the Torah to be a means of solidifying that covenant relationship that we have with God. It's more than just a, a group of, of very fine, constructed, good laws that help us live in a way that's profitable and good. It's more than that. It is that, but it's more than that. It involves the heart. It always has involved the heart. Not just in Yeshua's perspective. For Yeshua, the ability to live a life of righteousness that surpassed the piety of the scribes and the Pharisees was not something achieved by sheer determination or self-discipline alone. You can't simply say, okay, starting tomorrow I'm going to be a better person. 
Well, I mean, you can say that. And you can do it in some ways. You really can. You know? I mean, there's people that haven't got any regard at all for God or for the Scriptures that have stopped uh, their drug abuses, that have stopped their uh, uh, criminal behavior, etc., etc. I mean, there are people that have done that. But when it comes to, to measuring up to that last verse in this passage, you shall be perfect because your Father in Heaven is perfect, you can't, you can't do that simply by self-determination and, and discipline. Such ability is the fruit of a heart made new by a new birth brought about by the Spirit of God. And even when we have the Spirit of God, we realize how difficult it is. It isn't all of a sudden become just a, you know, a cakewalk. You know, when we have to forgive, we have to work at that. Right? As Yeshua is going to tell us. When we have to do what is right to our own hurt, we have to work at that. That's not normal. That's not natural for us. So, so the comments being made that you know we have to also define what neighbor is here, because uh, when we talk about neighbors, we're thinking about the house next door to us. But that does not necessarily mean that that person has any uh, uh, sense of cooperation with what we believe and and uh, feel is right and so forth. Okay. So yes. You're right, we will need to talk about that. Thus, in the antithesis of our text, Yeshua is exposing those who lived as though the Torah was primarily legislation for determining halakha, rather than the living and abiding word of God to which the heart, moved and controlled by the Spirit himself, willingly submits on the principles of love for God and for one's neighbor. And, you know, I, I know uh, maybe some of you have read the recent article in Messiah magazine, but that was my point. I know a lot of Christians who have no regard for the Torah who have this correct. <laughs> they obey God because they love Him. And they love Him deeply. And they work for Him. And they give their lives to Him. You know, regardless of what they're doing. And uh, they are a fine example of what, this, what I'm talking about here. You say, well, yeah, but they, I mean, they disregard this. They just, you know, okay, sure, right. None of us have it all right. But uh, we, have to be, we have to realize that the Spirit of God has worked in larger circles than what is just our circles. It is not then the words of the Torah to which Yeshua makes exception, or even the general teachings of the sages, in my opinion, though in some cases the rabbinic traditions did run contrary to the Torah itself. It was the fact that in emphasizing obedience to the Torah, which is in itself a noble thing, the sages had neglected in some measure to stress the necessity of the spiritual dimensions as the very fountain from which proper obedience flows. I remember one time talking to an Orthodox fellow up in Seattle. We just, I was up there at the, at, well, I won't even say where, I was at a local place up in uh, Seattle and uh, didn't, had never met this guy. And, uh, he was Jewish and I was Jewish, both wearing kippahs and DC and so forth. And we struck up a conversation. And uh, he asked me, of course, the first question is, where do you go to synagogue? And I told him. And uh, he asked me what kind of synagogue that was. He'd never heard of it. And I said, well, it's Messianic. And then you saw the walls go up. And uh, it wasn't long, however, that we were talking. And he began to ask me, uh, you know, he treated me, and that was fine with me. He treated me as though I were a Christian, and he began to ask me the questions that you would normally ask ask a Christian. And <clears throat> through our conversations, he stopped and he said, "You know what? The one thing, the one thing that I envy of you and and those people like you, is that you talk about God like you have this friendship with Him." Now, I'm not saying there aren't Orthodox Jews who have that. I know that there are, but I think it's uh, it is one of the pitfalls of organized Judaism is that it, it puts an awful lot of emphasis upon halakha and sometimes to the diminishing of a 
what we would call a personal relationship with God. I think this is what Yeshua is talking about here in our text. In legislating the manner in which the Torah was properly to be followed, they had elevated performance over the principle of love. Yeshua's antitheses then are given as a clear corrective to this situation, as a means of replanting Torah obedience back into the spiritual soil of love for God and for one's neighbor. Thirdly, while it seems clear that Yeshua was not giving new teaching nor expressing something that had not already been well expressed in the Torah, at least as rightly understood, we should not overlook the obvious fact that Yeshua, in the words he uses, expresses his own unique authority. Each of the six antitheses are introduced by a similar formula. You have heard it said to the ancients or whatever, but I say to you. Some have suggested that the use of heard points to a non-written or oral teaching, but this is not the case. Uh, rather, the rabbinic literature, in using this same expression, shows that the, the heard and say formula was a common way to express a well-known teaching or even a surface reading of the text which is called, this is what you've heard, followed by a variant or more informed interpretation, which is what the teacher would say, but he says, or whatever. Note, for instance, the Midrash on Exodus 19.20 in Makilta. Makilta is an, an early commentary, rabbinic commentary on the book of Exodus. Here, in reference to the commandment, honor your father and your mother, the writer says, I might understand, honor them with words only. The phrase, I might understand, is in the Hebrew, ani shomea, which means I hear, or I might hear. The Midrash goes on to refute this proposition, and to show that the commandment refers not only to respectful speech, but also to the duty of maintaining your parents. Daub shows that the rabbinical ter technical terms for literal meaning were shamua and mishma, both of which mean more or less, that which is heard. Uh, he goes on to say, Furthermore, Hashomea, he who hears, is used in the sense of he who sticks to the superficial literal meaning of Scripture. In the hermeneutical rule according to which a general summary, like the notice concerning man's creation in the first chapter of Genesis, may be followed by detailed facts, the story of man's creation in the second chapter, which are merely a repetition giving more particulars. He who hears, that is, he who takes Scripture literally, will form the erroneous belief that the second account refers to different facts, but in reality it is merely a repetition with more particulars. You see what he's saying? In other words, you might, you might, you might read it this way, but here's how I'm telling you what it really means. You have heard it said, but now I'm telling you this is a better understanding. Note in this regard another example from Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi in his comments on the phrase, And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai. I might hear this as it is heard. I might understand this according to its literal meaning, is what that means. But thou must say, and that is the word, but you say, If the Son, one of the many servants of God, may remain in its place and nevertheless be effective beyond it, how much more he by whose word the world came into being. In other words, they were troubled with the fact that it says that God came down on Mount Sinai. I mean, doesn't he dwell in the, in the heights? How can he come? If he comes down, then who's in the heights? And they're saying, well, look, if the sun can be way out there and affect everything out here, could, surely God could do the same things. In other words, he could be both places at once. It's no big deal. But the point that I make in this is that you have that same phraseology. You have heard it, but then here's another saying that uh, corrects it. This then gives us a setting for Yeshua's exposition. 
I should stop and ask, is that understandable? Am I going? It's, uh, okay. If it's not, raise your hand, or, or if you don't care, that's okay. It's fine, too. It is, acad- it is academic life, dialectic exegesis. That is, the battering back and forth, the dialogue back and forth to discover what the text means. You've heard it said, but I tell you what, but you, you say this, but I heard you say this, but I say this, and so forth. That's normal in rabbinic uh, interchange. In which the text is considered from comparative texts and ideologies rather than from a narrow surface reading. Yeshua follows the rabbinic pattern of hear and say to introduce a known teaching or what might appear to be an obvious interpretation and then to contrast it with his own teaching. But once we have seen that the formula you have heard but I say has its roots in rabbinic dialogue in Midrash, we should also notice a significant difference. Never, as far as I can find, in the rabbinic literature does a given rabbi or sage follow the opening you have heard or it is heard with the first person singular contrastive, but I say. Something that occurs in each of the six antitheses of our Matthew text. The rabbinic pattern is to reference another authority or to state another received interpretation. Usually, you have heard it, but I say in the name of rabbi such and such who says in the name of rabbi such and such that this is the interpretation. When Yeshua therefore introduces his teaching with the formula, but I say, he is expressing his own authority based not upon the teaching of others, but upon his own position as the chosen Messiah. Thus, his interpretation and application of the Torah is not one among many, but is the final word. As the one who brings the kingdom of God, he is also the priest who authoritatively and accurately interprets and teaches the Torah of God. Now, there's one more thing. I know I'm laying a lot of uh, groundwork here before we get into these verses, and we'll start that next week. But um, there's another thing that helps us, perhaps, in understanding these texts, these six antitheses. And that is the fact that in the first century, Judaism, as far as we can tell, and clearly in the rabbinic literature that we now have, the evaluation of the commandments was a significant topic. In other words, if you read the Mishnah, you will discover that there are certain penalties if you break a negative commandment and different penalties if you break a positive commandment. And even different penalties if a positive commandment is contained within a negative commandment and vice versa. So the question is, what I mean by evaluation is, is it a heavy commandment or is it a light commandment? And how do we determine The question of the relative value of the commandments found expression in many varied forms in the teaching of the sages. On the one hand, we find dicta, that is teaching, that proclaim the absolute equality of all the precepts. And on the other, we encounter clear distinctions drawn between more important and less important commandments and methods of classifying precepts and transgressions according to various criteria. So various sages and schools gave different criteria for these evaluations. For instance, Rav Yehuda's uh, comments on uh, Mishnah Shavuot 1.6. This is the meaning. The light transgressions are those involving positive or negative commandments, and the grave transgressions, or heavy ones, are those punished by extinction or death by sentence of the court. Thus, he based the criteria for, ev- for evaluation of the mitzvot on the severity of the penalty that the transgressions entail. All right? So let's see if you get it. What would be a heavy commandment? Don't murder. Why? Because the penalty for murder is death. death. And so that, that makes that a heavy. What would be a light commandment? 
Don't lie. Okay. Yeah. Don't eat. Uh, don't eat a, a pork chop. Yeah. What's the penalty for that? Being unclean Well. Yeah. Apparently. So then, would the would the command of not to steal be s- severe depending on how much well, you stole? It, it it would uh, the command to steal. The question is the command to steal. Uh, where where would that fall? Well, um, it, it would be not as light as uh, uh, kashrut, but it would not be as heavy as as murder. It but would be somewhere in between. In other words, you would you you would incur some public humiliation. You would have to pay back plus a fifth. Yeah, but so. if, you, if you only stole a piece of bubble gum, you'd only have to pay back the bubble sure. gum plus sure. Sure. a fifth. Sure. But if you stole ten thousand dollars, now can you see how the evaluation of commandments, uh, as we're going to see it in the rabbinic literature, can you see how it is based upon the Torah as a legislative body of laws? How do you think Yeshua is going to evaluate the commandments according to your heart relationship with the Father? He's going to put as heavy the command of hating as everyone else would put the command of murder. So can you see how his halakhic decision-making principle of love, love for God and love for, for fellow man, becomes a deciding factor in how to evaluate the commandments as well. Thus, uh, Rabbi Ben Azai saw it differently. On the verse, only be steadfast in not eating the blood. Now here's a kashrut issue. He remarked, Now, there are 300 similar positive precepts in the Torah. It comes to teach us, therefore, that if in regard to blood, then which there, uh, there is no lighter precept among all the commandments, Scripture admonishes you thus, in other words, it, it says it 300 times, how much more so in the case of other precepts. Erbach explains the, his uh, Rabbi Zai's uh, words. The eating of the blood is something repulsive. Consequently, it is easy to abstain from it. Lightness and stringency are not measured by the extent of the reward or punishment involved in doing the precept or transgression, but according to the effort required to fulfill the commandments or to refrain from the transgressions. So, in this case, eating blood would be a light commandment. Why? Because you never want to do it anyway. Ugh, who wants to eat that stuff? In other words, you don't have to work very hard to say no to that command, uh, you know, to obey that commandment. It's kind of natural for you. So that's a light commandment. So too, a precept not entailing expenditure of money or involving danger to life is called a light commandment. Along these same lines, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai explained the stringency of the commandment to honor one's parents. The effort required to keep this commandment elevates it to a high position. For it is taught, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai said, Great is the precept of honoring father and mother, for the Holy One, blessed be he, put it above the honor due to him. It is, sta- it is stated, honor thy father and thy mother. And it is sta- stated, honor the Lord with thy substance. With what should you honor him? With the substance that he graciously bestows upon you. Setting aside the gleanings, the forgotten sheaf, the corners of the field, separating the heave offering, the first tithe, the second tithe, the poor man's tithe, the dough offering, preparing a booth, a palm branch, a ram's horn, phylacteries and fringes, feeding the poor and the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty. If you have, you are obligated to do any of these things. But if you have not... You are not obligated to do any of these things, right? If you don't have a corner, you don't have to leave it. If you don't have vines, you don't have to leave the grapes. But when we come to the commandment of honoring parents, whether you have substance or not, you must honor thy father and thy mother, even if you have to go begging. Because it doesn't say honor your father and mother with your substance. It just says honor your father and mother. 
So he puts that as a very heavy commandment, and so does Yeshua, right? In Matthew 23, he says, of all of you pious Pharisees, uh, uh, not all, but some of you pious Pharisees, you know, give your wealth to the temple, and then when your mom and dad need need you to help them out in their old age, you say, well, I'm so sorry, I don't have anything because I've donated it all to the temple. Well, you're going to get it back in 10 years. You just did that so they wouldn't eat it up, so you'd have something left over when it was all over. Whatever. We know that Yeshua had also come to a conclusion on laws which were light and those which were heavy. And that he agreed with those who made a law such as honoring father and mother an extremely stringent or heavy one, for it is on this very basis that he rebukes the Pharisees and admonishes them not to neglect the weightier matters of the law by becoming entangled in the lighter precepts. But these things, he says, are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Thus, Yeshua was fully aware of and participant in the debate over the evaluation of commandments. In the end, however, the majority opinion coincided with Yeshua's own position, as we read in Perkeavot, and be heedful of a light precept as of a weighty one, for you know not the reward given for the precepts. The righteous or pious will obey from the heart, which means they will desire to keep all the precepts of God, regardless of whether they are light or weighty. One's rewards come from pleasing God, and this means doing what he commands. The same idea is reflected in the prayer book. For instance, in the mornings we pray, these are the precepts, the fruit of which man enjoys in the world. This is actually the opening of Tractate Paya in the, the Mishnah. Uh, fruit of which man enjoys in this world while the principal reward is preserved for him in the world to come. They are honoring father and mother, performing deeds of kindness, early attendance in the house of study, morning and evening, providing hospitality to guests, visiting the sick, participating in making a wedding, accompanying the dead to the grave, concentrating on the meaning of prayers, making peace between fellow men, and the study of Torah is equal to them all. Each of these would not have been classed as weighty by the Pharisees that Yeshua rebukes. Yet in the end, the stance of the sages is that the study of Torah is equal to them all, meaning that the end of true Torah learning is the performance of these deeds. Thus these deeds, which might have at one time been considered light, have gained a high or weighty status, and in the majority they may be grouped under the heading of love or showing of mercy. Well, you can see the page runs out because I didn't finish the next one. Okay, so we'll start there next week. So we have at least some background now to study the sixth antithesis. I'll be interested in your... Um, you can study ahead. Um, you know, these are, we these are big problems, weighty problems. We have the issue of, uh, of oaths. We have the issue of divorce uh, that come up here in these in this text and there's not a lot of easy answers quick answers to these They've, uh, Yeshua gave us some some good uh, puzzling words but we'll do our best you've been listening to the commentary on the gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah resource president and instructor Tim Haig if you like this teaching and want to hear more please visit us at TorahResource.com Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse -verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew.